Now let's uh, turn to the 22nd chapter of Matthew, and we'll continue our studies in this gospel. What we see in this chapter is a sample of the sort of thing that uh, eventuated in, in Jesus' death. His behavior resulted in people being so antagonistic toward him that eventually they, uh, they murdered him. Dorothy Sayers puts it this way, To those who knew Jesus, he in no way suggested a milk-and-water person. They objected to him as a dangerous firebrand. True, he was tender to the unfortunate, patient with, the honest, with honest inquirers, and humble before heaven. But he insulted respectable clergymen by calling them hypocrites. He went to parties in disreputable company and was looked upon as a gluttonous man and a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners. He assaulted indignant tradesmen and threw them and their belongings out of the temple. He drove a coach and horses through a number of sacrosanct regulations. He cured diseases by any means that came handy, with a shocking casualness in the matter of other people's pigs and property. He showed no proper deference for wealth or social position. When confronted with neat dialectical traps, he displayed a paradoxical humor that offended serious-minded people, and he retorted by asking searching questions that could not be answered by rule of thumb. He was emphatically not a dull man in his human lifetime, and if he was God, there can be nothing dull about God either. But he had a daily beauty in his life that made us ugly, and officialdom felt that the established order of things would be better without him. So they did away with God in the name of peace and quiet. And uh, that's what we're seeing in these studies in Matthew, the Lord's capacity to arouse in men great hostility simply because he spoke to them the truth, and that hostility eventually ended in his death. Chapter 22 is concerned with the Passion Week, and as we've said before, the events uh, on this in this particular chapter took place on Tuesday of the week on which he was crucified on Friday, so we're very close to the cross. The day began with the question about his authority. Back in chapter 21, he cleansed the temple. The Pharisees say, by what authority do you do these things? And as you'll recall, Jesus did not directly answer uh, them. He told a series of parables, the point of which was in each case, even if, you, if I told you by what authority I did these things, uh, it wouldn't matter because you're not subject to God's authority. And uh, he penetrates behind their facade. They were religious, religious folk. On the surface, they were committed to God. But what the Lord saw is that way down deep inside, where it really matters, there was no real heartfelt commitment to the Lord. And uh, he exposes that uh, lack of loyalty through these parables. And then they counter by sending several delegations to him, three, as they're described in uh, chapters 22 and 23. First, the Pharisees and Herodians. And then later the Sadducees in verse 23 and following, and the Pharisees uh, again in 34. Now let's begin reading with chapter 22, verse 15. <clears throat> then the Pharisees went and counseled together how they might trap him in what he said. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you're truthful and teach the way of God in truth and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? 
Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus, perceiving their malice, uh, Jesus perceived their malice and said, Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the poll tax. And they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And hearing this, they marveled, and leaving him, they went away. So the Pharisees uh, find some of their young theological students, and they, together with the Herodians, uh, concoct this uh, test question with which they approach the Lord. Now, it would be difficult to find uh, a stranger group of bedfellows than the Herodians and the Pharisees because they represented two opposite extremes of the political and religious spectrum. The Herodians were very secular in their thinking. They weren't religious men at all. Uh, they were partisans and supporters of the Herodian family, Herod the Great and, and his dynasty, and uh, supporters of the Roman Empire and his puppet and their puppet uh, pointies, the Herods. On the other end of the spectrum were the Pharisees, who were very patriotic and nationalistic and very conservative in their thinking. It would be like getting together the Anybody But Church Committee and Gannett News Service and trying to get them to uh, work together on some, some project. The only thing these two groups could agree upon was their hatred and hostility toward Jesus. And that's what drew them together. And so they uh, draw out of their theological schools some of their uh, young students who always love to debate theological matters. And they send them to Jesus with this question. Is it lawful for us to pay the poll tax to Caesar or not? They thought that they had the Lord on the horns of a dilemma. They did not think that he had an answer. They, uh, they believed that any answer he gave would uh, result in, in his downfall. If he said, yes, we ought to pay the poll tax to Caesar, then he would alienate the multitudes that were following him because the multitudes uh, dislike taxes even more than we do today. The tax burden of those days was excessive. It was confiscatory. Uh, how you say that? Confiscatory, yeah. And uh, it was very oppressive. Some have said that the, it may have been as much as 50% of their total income that went into taxes, customs, duties of various types. And uh, these taxes were used to support an army that oppressed them. They were used to erect uh, uh, Herod the Great's uh, architectural uh, monstrosities. He built buildings all over Palestine that no one wanted. And they were for his own aggrandizement, not for the people. The people didn't profit from them at all. And a lot of this money went back to Rome to support the Caesars uh, at the level to which they had become accustomed. And uh, uh, so they hated the idea of, of taxation. And had Jesus said, yes. Pay your taxes. The crowd would have melted away, and then the Pharisees could have jailed Jesus. Without the support of the crowds, he was defenseless from a human standpoint. On the other hand, if he said, no, don't pay the poll tax, then he would be in trouble with the Roman Empire, and they would jail him. So almost any answer he gave would be wrong. They thought they had him. But uh, Jesus' answer, though it is very simple, is very profound, and it wasn't what they expected at all. I've come to believe uh, that uh, the most profound answers are often the most simple. Anyone can be confusing. It takes uh, real brilliance to be simple. Uh, I remember once watching a television program in which they were interviewing Eric Hoffer, who is a, a dock worker in San Francisco, 
but quite a philosopher. And uh, they were asking him questions about uh, upgrading the quality of life among dock workers in San Francisco, and perhaps there ought to be various uh, tests that could be administered that would, uh, the, so they could find out what their skills were and get them better jobs. And uh, they said, uh, should, uh, should these tests be administered? And uh, let's see, I've forgotten that there's a term that popped out of my mind. What do you call these tests where you find that you're a principal? Were you um, aptitude tests? There you go. He said, no, no. He says, we don't need aptitude tests. We need rectitude tests. And I thought, now that is profound. Because what he was saying is that our concern should not be primarily are people skillful, but are what is their character? Are they righteous? See? Will they do the job right? Now, that was a very simple yet a, a very profound answer. And that's the sort of thing that that Jesus, uh, Jesus does repeatedly with his divine wisdom. He penetrates right to the issue. And he says, uh, does anyone have a coin? Apparently he didn't have one. And uh, so someone produces the, denari the uh, denarius. And I happen to have one here. It's a little silver coin about so big. And it was, it was coined specifically for the poll tax. That's, that's the reason that this particular denomination was, uh, was coined. And uh, he said, who's on the, whose image is on the coin? So they look at it, and sure enough, there's Tiberius Caesar's uh, image on one side, and on the other side is the inscription that says uh, Tiberius Caesar. Whose image and inscription is on the coin? They say Caesar. And then the Lord says, with profound insight, then give back to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Whose picture is on it? Caesar, well, it must be Caesar's coin. Then give it back to him. But render back to God the things that are God's. Whose image is on you? God. Then give yourself back to God. You see what he's saying? What uh, social scientists and uh, philosophers and theologians have written volumes about, the Lord dismisses with one line. This, this in essence, gathers up our responsibility toward government, and toward our Lord. Give back to Caesar what belongs to him and give to God what belongs to him. Now what the Lord is doing is establishing that there are legitimate spheres of authority. Government is one of them. Government has a legitimate claim on our life. We can't dispute that from a biblical standpoint. The uh, apostles picked up this idea and they elaborate upon it. Paul in Romans 13 describes the measure of submission which we should give to our government. He says, not only should we pay taxes and custom and duties to government, but we also owe them honor and reverence. These are the inner attitudes which no one sees. Not only should we outwardly submit, but inwardly we should submit as well. That's what we owe our government. Because government is not merely of men, it's of God. God has established government in order to check the evil of mankind. Without government, we would tear each other apart. And so government is Paul and the other apostles, Peter and 1 Peter 2, very clearly is there because God, it's God's will that government uh, maintain law and order and justice in an unruly fallen world. And we owe respect and honor and duty and uh, the payment of taxes to that government. That's clearly a biblical position. Dave Pavlik was telling me the other day he was driving the school bus and there was this great uh, political debate raging among the kids. And uh, someone jumped up and said, uh, call somebody a thief. And somebody else said, no, no, he's a robber. And, and I'd never vote for that guy. He's a crook. 
And Dave, you know, Dave Pavlik, he grinds the bus to a halt and he stands up and he says, all right, stop the music, hold the phone, everybody sit down and be quiet. He said, the Bible says that we are supposed to be praying for our leaders. If you're not praying for your leaders, then you don't have any right to say anything. So sit down, shut up, and pray. And off he goes to the, the school. Well, he's right. You know, that's where we really have to start. We, we, owe, we owe our leaders that kind of, of, of uh, respect and honor. But there is a higher authority, and that's God. And as Jesus is reasoning here, we owe God everything, not just a part. We owe to the government the denarius, the coin that was formed just for that purpose, to give back to the government. But God formed us for his purposes, and we owe him all of our life. That's the point that Jesus is making, every bit of it. And the only way we can find our ultimate purpose in life, the only way we can ever be satisfied, the only way the real hunger in our heart can be assuaged is when we are willing to give ourselves back to God. This analogy that he uses between taxes and giving ourselves to God is a good one because I think in our relationship to the Lord, very often we are like honest but reluctant taxpayers. We sit down at the uh, end of the year and we start working on our income tax returns and we do not want to evade any taxes, but we want to avoid any and we want to pay the absolute minimum that we can get by with. And unfortunately, that's often the way we respond to God's authority. We want to just give him the bare minimum, whatever we can get away with. Uh, C.S. Lewis says that we're like uh, people going down to the sea in which... We were created to dive and dip and swim and float, and we just dabble and splash. And that's, unfortunately, what we do. We just dabble around with God. We just splash around. And we don't really give him everything. That's what we owe him, everything. That's what we were created for. That's how we discover our destiny. Unfortunately, we wall off little portions of our life, little parks, private parks that are ours, and we can wander in and remember how it used to be before we knew the Lord. And we're not willing to bring the walls down and say, you can have the whole of me. Maybe our thought life that, that we're keeping to ourselves or some private ambition or a stated amount of money that we're going to make or a position in our company. And then, then we'll give up ourselves to God. But you see, what we don't realize is that we'll never find ourselves, we'll never be what we want to be until we're willing to give him all of ourselves. I think the reason so, so many of us are, are really desperate in our Christian lives is that we have never been willing to give him everything. We've just given, given him a part, and so we don't have all of God. Uh, I have a good friend who has made available to us his airplane to uh, fly us back into the back country. As I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, we're putting together this mission, and we're starting to get some of the resources together to do it. And uh, a friend of mine who doesn't live in this city um, has an airplane that he's made available. Said he's willing to fly people back into the these backcountry communities. And uh, so last week, uh, several of us went up to Stanley to talk to the people up there about starting that mission. And uh, it, it was a foggy day; he couldn't land. We flew around for a long time trying to find a place to land. Finally, landed away from the strip and. 
the man who was to meet us had to go get us. And to make a long story short, it was late in the afternoon, four or five o'clock in the afternoon, before we could get away, and it just took up his whole day. He's a businessman. His particular vocation depends on his being there, being on the job. And he just lost a whole day of work, and it cost him uh, quite a bit of money just to fly up there and back. And as we were flying back, he said to me, you know, he said, if you had asked me a year ago to do this, I would have said no. No way. But uh, he said, I've come to discover the truth of Jesus' words. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added to you. He says, those things, it doesn't matter to me any longer that I lost a day's work or I put a lot of gasoline through this, through this engine. What matters to me is that I want to obey God. He said, I'm finding a satisfaction in life and a freedom that I never had before. Now, you see, that's what the Lord is saying. That's how we enter into real freedom of life in Christ. When we're willing to say, Lord, I'm just giving you back what you've created. I was created for you, and I want to render it up. All of me, my life, my body, my thoughts, everything that I am is yours to do with as you please. Now, that's Jesus' answer to the Herodians. Then in the verses that follow, he speaks to the Sadducees, beginning with verse 23. <clears throat> On that day, some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and questioned him, saying, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother as next of kin shall marry his wife and raise up an offspring to his brother. Now, there were seven brothers with us, and the first married and died having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So also the second and the third down to the seventh. I think had I been the fourth or fifth husband, I would have started eating out. <laughs> and last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife of the seven shall she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not understanding the scriptures or the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read that which was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Have you, have you, ever, have you ever noticed how people who want to fend off the Lord always have a stumper? They've always got a question that they normally they they. I think they actually believe they thought of it themselves, and no one else ever thought of it. And the impression given is that if if one could just answer this question, then they would they would let uh, they would give in to the Lord uh, and His claims. I'm convinced, however, that's not the case. I don't think anyone ever rejected Christ for intellectual reasons, as John puts it. We reject the Lord because we don't want to come to the light. We don't want him to expose us. We don't want to unveil ourselves and let him see us as we really are. We'd rather go it alone and, and run our own life than let someone else rule. That's what keeps us from the Lord. It's not some intellectual hang-up that we have. But very often there is that stumper, that conundrum, that puzzle that's thrown out there that is supposed to be unsolvable. And this apparently is what the Sadducees are doing. This was a question that evidently no one had ever been able to answer. This was what it stumped the Pharisees and all the other theologians of, of that day. Now, the Sadducees are what we would call today religious liberals. They did not accept the authority of the scriptures except the first five books of Moses, and they had problems with portions of, of that section of the Old Testament. 
They did not believe in angels or anything supernatural, demons. They didn't believe in a spirit world. They believed that this world is all there is. And at death, you simply cease to exist. Or, if there is any resurrection at all, they were simply agnostic about it. They were rationalists. They were simply bounded by, by this time. That, that was the, those were, were their horizons. And their question had to do with the issue of what is called levirate marriage. Levirate marriage has nothing to do with the Levi's. Uh, it, it's a Latin term that means brother-in-law. And uh, it's, it refers to a practice in the, in the ancient Semitic world of marrying your brother's wife if your brother died. Uh, a woman, woman marries a man and she dies, then the brother of that man has to marry the widow if, if the first brother uh, is deceased. The reason being they wanted to keep the family possessions within the tribe. The man would die and the woman might marry someone outside the tribe and that tribe then would gain possession of the land that formerly had belonged to the clan. So in the culture of that day, it was, it was a good law, helpful. And uh, the Sadducees refer first to this law to remind Jesus, though he knew full well what the law was. And then they pose this fantastic story. This woman who had seven husbands, one after the other. They all die. Then she dies, and they go to heaven, and they chuckle and say, Now, who's... Wife is she in the next age? And you can see, again, the problem that they're posing. Moses said it's all right to have seven husbands on this basis. But Moses also said that it was God's intention that one man and one woman be together for life. There's a conflict between these two ideas, they reason, so therefore in the eternal state there's going to be confusion. Here, here, there'll be a man in heaven who has seven, or a woman who has seven husbands. Now, how do you solve that problem? Well, Jesus' answer, again, is very simple but very profound. He says, you do not understand the scriptures or the power of God. He says, you're wrong. That's all. You're mistaken. He's not being unkind. The term that he uses here is not harsh. He just says, you're wrong. You're mistaken. You don't really know the word of God. If you knew the word of God, you would know the power of God. And you see, the problem with the Sadducees, is that they were living as though it all depended upon them. And God said, and Christ says, no, it all depends upon God. You don't know the power of God. You don't know what God can do. And of course, the, that's the problem with, with us. If we don't know the scriptures and the power of God, we think it all depends upon us. We can't solve the problem of death. They just uh, granted a bunch of Nobel Prizes this past uh, Month And uh, as far as I know, no one received a Nobel Prize for having solved the problem of death. I'm sure they'd give one if someone could solve that problem. But as a friend of mine said some months ago, he became a Christian because he realized there was one problem he could never beat, and that was the problem of death. And if it all depends on me, you see, that's true. You can't solve that problem, but if it depends on God, God has a way. If I think it all depends upon me and my marriage is in wreckage, then get out of it. Start over again. Find somebody else. But if it all depends on God, then God has the resources to make that marriage go. Or if we're in failing health, we might give way to despair. I think I can't stand this any longer and take our life unless we understand that it doesn't depend upon us. It all depends upon God. 
And that's what the scriptures teach us. That's, that's why we teach the scriptures, among other things. The word of God tells us that God is able to do exceeding abundantly above anything we could ever ask or think. He has capacities well beyond our human abilities to solve problems. And that's what Jesus says to these Sadducees. You just don't understand. You're reckoning without the power of God. And that's, what, that's what's gotten you into this mess. Now he says, let's talk a bit about the power of God. And in verse 30, he answers directly the puzzle that they've, that they've posed. It's a little stumper about the woman who had seven husbands. He says, in effect, the whole thing is irrelevant. You ask who, who will be married to her in, uh, in heaven, and the Lord says it's irrelevant because there isn't any marriage in heaven. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And what the Lord does is just pull the veil back a little bit, and he just gives us a flash of what heaven is like. Now, he doesn't say people are angels in heaven. He says they are like angels, and we'll see in a moment what he's talking about. There's no marriage there. He says we're like angels. Now, uh, some people might be gladdened by that, that there's no marriage in heaven. Steve was telling me of a friend of his who uh, erroneously used to counsel people. Uh, if they were having trouble in their marriage, don't worry about it. When you die, you're not going to be married to her anyway, so uh, relax. But uh, somehow that misses the point of this passage. On the other hand, some people are greatly saddened by that. That first really disturbs Carolyn. She said, I know what you're going to do in heaven. You're going to wander off and talk to people, leave me alone, you know, and I'll be standing there trying to find you. <laughs> and that's, uh, that's disturbing to her. But uh, you know what I think, and, and, and here we're bordering on speculation somewhat, but uh, I like to do that within the limits of Scripture. Whatever it is that makes marriage necessary in this cruel, cold world today, makes it unnecessary in heaven. You know, this is a world filled with death. For one thing, there's physical death. And uh, so we have to procreate the race. We have to regenerate the race. Give birth to children. And that's necessary in this life because we die. But in heaven, we won't give birth to children. A cherub is not a baby angel, by the way. A cherub is just one angel. There are no baby angels. And uh, there will be no babies in heaven. We'll all be adults, apparently. So there's no need for procreation. But uh, also in this world, there is, there is not only physical death, there is spiritual and emotional death. There's coldness, lovelessness, and indifference out there in the world. And it's so nice to be able to go home and be loved and have someone who will listen to you, someone who cares about you. And that's one of the functions of marriage in this life. There's security, support, encouragement. There, at least there should be. See. And in heaven, that's unnecessary. Because as Jesus described it, heaven is like a big mansion, and the Father is there, and all the children live in, in, in rooms, and they come out and they gather and fellowship and love each other, and there's no sin to mar human relationships, and so it's like one big marriage. We all can love and, and appreciate each other and encourage each other and be transparent, honest. And find the support and encouragement that we need. Now, I, I think, I don't have anything to base it on, but I think, based on the character of God, that our relationship with our mates and our children will always be special. In, in one sense, there will be a unique kind of relationship there. 
But the sort of thing that marriage provides for us now, the supportive framework for life, will be, that's the way heaven will be in totality. There will be that sort of love and fellowship there. I, I, I thought the other day it would be like this. Suppose I step into heaven and uh, the Lord welcomes me and I start fishing around in my pockets and I realize I've left all my money at home. And I, I don't have a cent. And I say, oh, Lord, I'm really sorry. I, I left my money behind. And he says, oh, that's all right. You don't need it up here. We, uh, we make, make asphalt out of it here. Put it on the streets. It's no big deal. And I say, well, how am I going to buy my meals? Oh, that's all right. They're provided. Well, what about room and board? Well, that's okay. You don't need money. We're going to take care of you. Every need will be provided here. You don't need your money. You see, we're so accustomed to living in this world with money in our pockets, we don't know what it's like to be up there without some cash. And I think that's somewhat the case with, with marriage. We're so used to the framework of security that marriage supplies that uh, we don't know what it's going to be like to, to not be married. But apparently... God is going to be the framework for all of life there. He's the supportive framework. And in one sense, we're going to be married to one another and share the freedom of relationship, uninhibited freedom that we don't have here. And really, ultimately, what it all depends upon is the goodness of God. God is he's, he's good. He's right. He loves us. Whatever heaven is, it's going to be just the right sort of place. As C.S. Lewis puts it, when we step into God's presence, our first response will be, of course. That's what I thought it would be. <laughs> it's everything that I've ever wished and, and hoped for. Now, the Lord goes on in verses 31 and following to go to the deeper issue. He first answers the question that they raise, and then he goes beyond that, beyond that question to the root problem of the Pharisees touching the, the resurrection. In verse 31, regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read that which was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Now, it may be that, that the Lord is playing on the present tense verb, I am, uh, the particular incident occurred when God spoke to Moses out of the burning bush in Exodus 3. And he says to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Isaac and Jacob and Abraham had been dead for 400 years. And God did not say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says, I am. And that may be the argument that Jesus is making. I think, however, on the basis of Luke's use of this quotation, and what, uh, what Jesus is saying is that the God of the character of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is not going to cut their life off at death. God aroused such great expectations in Abraham. He said, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to enrich your life. And through you, I'm going to bless the whole world. And Hebrews says that Abraham knew what he was talking about. He wasn't talking about a, a physical land solely. He said he, he looked for a building that had foundations not made with hands. He looked for an eternal building, an eternal habitation that Abraham saw through the physical promises to the greater promises that God had. And the Lord's point is, could a God like that who arouses those sorts of hopes in people's mind then cut them off at death? No. Suppose I say to my son Joshua, we're going to the zoo next Saturday. And he gets all excited, and every day I tell him, boy, we're going to have the greatest time in the world when we go to the zoo. And then we, Saturday rolls around, and I get up and say, ah, I never did intend to go to the zoo. I just conned you. 
What kind of father would I be? And what kind of heavenly father do we have who arouses in us such such expectations that we know can't be fulfilled in this life? There has to be more than this life. He's the God of the living, not the God of those who die. And he has in mind for us an eternal quality of life that goes on past the grave. That's the kind of Lord that we're related to. And that's the kind of Lord that says, I just I want you to give give me your life. See? He's not He's not hard. As Jesus put it, his burden is easy. His yoke is light. Doesn't chafe. Oh, the circumstances may be hard. God doesn't promise that our life will be easy. But the Lord himself is not hard. He's gracious, loving, wants to give, not only in this life, but in the life to come. Why then should we be so reluctant to give up our lives to him? Lord, I'll I'll give it all to you. Whatever it costs, I'll render back to you what you've given to me, my life. And we read in verse 33 that when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished. The word means literally they struck out. They're like uh, Willie Wilson. The uh, World Series is over. And uh, that was their reaction when they heard uh, when they heard Jesus teaching, they realized that to try to live life on their own terms and without the indwelling presence of God was futile. They just struck out. They didn't have any more questions, no puzzles. They knew that they had the answer in the Lord Jesus. Now my question to you and to me this morning is, are we willing to render back to the Lord what he's given to us? seeing that he's that kind of Lord, as Paul puts it in Romans 12, knowing therefore the mercies of God, present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is a reasonable act of worship. That's really what, what, what God wants. He just wants us, all of our life. Our thoughts, our actions, our attitudes, our aspirations, our dreams, everything that we are, everything that we have. And when we do that, then life gets exciting. I can't think of anything duller than living the the Christian life on a part-time basis, just halfway. But when we give him everything that we are, then he gives back an abundant quality of life. Let's pray. And would you take a moment to think about your own relationship to the Lord? Perhaps you've never, ever given him your heart. Maybe you've just been religious, or maybe you haven't been religious or churchy at all. And there's been, for a long time, an emptiness that nothing would fill. Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and open the door, I'll come in. If you invite him in, he'll come in to stay. Or maybe you've invited him in. And yet there's some portion of your life that you regard as personal and private. Perhaps your thought life or some dream that you have. Would you let him be Lord of that area of your life? And even though you don't feel that you have the strength to follow through, will you believe that the demand is ultimately on him and you can reckon on his power and not yours? Father, we give you thanks 
for your love for us, for being just what we need to face life, for having been here and, and therefore understanding life, and then being available to us to provide what we need. We want to draw near to you this morning and thus have you draw near to us. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.